Months after the end of the Trump administration, we remain as divided as ever, with recent shootings and the fallout around them sort of reminding us that our country's wounds still haven't fully healed. Is there anyone who can lead us back to being one country, healthy and united? President Biden is giving it a try, and he might make some progress by bringing the troops home from Afghanistan this year. But is that the key to furthering the cause of peace, or will it be giving up our hard-fought gains? I'm Clay Aiken, and this week, Politicon welcomes a guest who can speak to both leadership and what we should be doing with it when we have it. Joining us is veteran of the Bush and Obama administrations, former SEAL Team 2 commander Mike Hayes. Mike is now a leader in business, and he's the author of a new book on leadership called Never Enough, a Navy SEAL commander on living a life of excellence, agility, and meaning. True to his mission of giving back, the proceeds of his book all go to the 1162 Foundation, which is an organization that serves to pay off the mortgages of Gold Star families. I'm going to ask Mike what leadership strategies he wishes more of our politicians employed today. How does he feel about the Biden administration's approach to Afghanistan, Iran, and Russia? And how can we pick our battles better? And of course, how the heck are we going to get along? Hello, hello. Hello, hello. Am how I... are you? Good, how are you? Things are good. You've, you clearly have done this a few times because one, you have the setup set up also. One and a half. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Do you, I mean, have you been, where are you? I'm in Westport, Connecticut. Oh, got it. So you have, have you been stuck at home a lot for the pandemic or have you been working from home or Big how's that time. working out? Working from home and the, uh, you know, I, I, I end up, my work sent me, I help run a large technology company and they sent me lights and green screens and all kinds, more stuff than I needed. So, well, there you go. That's everybody. I feel like I'm a little worried about people maybe never coming back out of these, these cubicle, these house cubbies, right? I know, I know. I know. I, Especially I, with ones with the news, because the news networks—they're never going to pay for a satellite uplink again. No, it's uh, that's that's t it's all coming from home now. Right? Does your um is your company that you has the company that you work for been everybody working from home also? Hundred percent. What's going to happen when people? Like our office buildings out of luck now? Yeah, well, we're gonna keep, we're gonna go hybrid. So uh, like I'm in Westport, but I'm the, I'm the first senior hire outside of Palo Alto. I work for a company called VMware. It does, it's uh, like the, the nation's third largest software company. And uh, you know, it's really tough because you know, the, there's so much real estate, but the company wants to just give people flexible choice, which is the right thing to do. And we'll kind of figure it out over time. Is that, is that, how, what's that gonna do to the economy? When everyone's at home and nobody's renting office space, does that worry you at all? Yeah, you know, it, it's, it's, uh, I think, you know, in the 1940s and 50s when, you know, all the knitting and, and, and knitting mills left America and went somewhere else, I'm sure that worried people then too. You know, it's like, on the one hand, it's like, it's got to be some sort of, sort of progress. You got to find the good in it, right? Well, listen, aren't that a nice way to put it? I do appreciate that mentality, though, because not many people do that anymore, no, finding the good well, in something. You know, Clay, I've had a couple of, like, done a couple of podcasts and stuff, and I love your premise uh, of, like, it's, like, just what I read and what I saw in the background and stuff. It's just, uh, how do we make the world a better place? You know, how do we all get along and, and accept, you know, everybody's different, and, and you know, I certainly am, and, and how do we just make it all work, you know? Do you have an answer? Because I'm going to ask you that oh, question. Dude. And if you have an answer, I would love to hear it. Well, we're I mean, I know your book is about that. <laughs> you're but... going to have the lowest number of, uh, of, of the smallest audience ever, because if, if my wisdom is zero. <laughs> well, listen, we, we've been doing this now. I think this is all, it's our 59th episode. So we've done this every week. We actually started two weeks prior to the shutdown. We thought we were going to be doing this live. <laughs> um, <Yeah. laughs> and... And here we are a year later, still in the same room, still wearing the same underwear. Um, yeah. <laughs> and we have been trying to figure that out. But I've told people who listen regularly know this. We attempted to do this show with a panel. And we wanted to have people from across the political spectrum um, discussing. And we discovered that's not 
possible, or at least it's not easy, because some of the some of the debates and some of the arguments that people had, nobody wants to. Nobody wants to get along, it seems. Nobody wants to do anything except for argue. Have you found that to oh, be? Oh, it's terrible. It's that, that's like, I love to talk about that a little bit, but the, the hollowing, the, anyways, yeah. And what's the saying? You, you want to make God laugh, tell him your plan? Yeah, right. Well, God, I feel like he's laughing a whole hell of a lot now. Yeah. Because we got 330 million people here and they all have 330 different million but million hopefully different we plans. have the cleanest closets of all time. You know, hopefully, you know, it's... it's uh... That was true for a while. And Home Depot was like really knocking it out of the park with business early on. I think most people have totally given the hell up. They don't care anymore. Yeah. They've stopped. Have you, I've stopped cleaning. I'm just like, you know what? I'll live in squalor. I don't care yeah. at all. <laughs> so your book, Never Enough, A Navy Steel, Seal Commander's on Living a Life of Excellence, Agility, and Meaning. Um is really sort of about what we were just sort of talking about here, how to, how to live. We inadvertently started talking about the topic already. So I love that that's what you wrote about. Um, it's about how to do good in the world. It's sort of got a lot of flavors of, of you know, your experience in the Navy SEALs, your experience in Afghanistan. You're one of maybe out of 59 episodes we've done a small handful, not even a full handful of people who've actually worked in both parties' administrations, which is very rare and refreshing. Um, so thank you for that. Um, <laughs> it's, it's sort of a dying breed of people who want to serve. Um, do you have any idea of why you think that is that we don't really have as last week's episode was about selflessness with Richard Louis, um, who wrote a book about selflessness. And we talked a lot about how we've sort of become a more selfish society in ways. Any thoughts on why? Well, it's a good, it is a great question and it's the right question. And ultimately, you know, it's, it's funny because the, the, the first question I usually get answered off the street is like, never enough. Isn't that about, you know, that's, you know, fame and fortune and, and it's just so provocative and, and really the, the title meaning is about meaning and impact and purpose. And it is, you know, my real goal is, it's, it's how do we help people understand that serving others is what, uh, what it's all about. It's the name of the game. And so, you know, it's when you, when you try, aspire to live a life of giving more than taking, then, then that's the magic that makes the, you know, our, our institutions, our cities, our states, our country, the globe really strong. And, and it's what's missing today. So I think uh, to answer your question a little more directly, the question to me would be, do we celebrate the, uh, the public servants enough? You know, whether it's, it's uh, you know, certainly healthcare workers, you know, you, 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 our educators, our historically somewhat underpaid public servants across the entire spectrum of, of service, you know, holding them up and, and saying, a lot of people say, hey, Mike, thank you for your service. And and, 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 you know, I, I, the way I always answer that, Clay, is, hey, thank you for your service because we all have, you know, different gifts and different abilities and different interests. And so how we uh, tap into that and say, you know what, I served as a SEAL, but, you know, you've served as, you know, an, an entertainer, an inspiration, a, a, a provocateur on, on uh, podcasts in so many different ways. And, and, and we all bring good to the world in the ways that make the most sense for us. And that's what I think is missing is that, is that acceptance. April 15th, 2021. First time I've ever been called a provocateur. I'm actually usually so boring because I would rather people just get the hell along. Um, do you... I say that in an absolutely... I know you do. What you mean? I know what you're doing. I'm, I'm totally kidding. Um, do, do you get tired of people saying, I mean, thank you for your service? Does it feel empty to you when someone says that to you? It does not feel empty because I know that it's coming from a great place in someone's head and in their heart. And it's like, I try to judge people by their action, by their intent, not their actions. You know, so many times we make mistakes because we judge people for their actions. It's kind of like at work, no matter where we work, how many people get out of bed and say, what can I go screw up today? 
You know, it's it's a, it's a small number now. Just okay. me. <laughs> but, uh, Maybe it's what will I screw up today? But okay. Right, yeah. But but the, so so the question is is um it does does it, it it does it never feels empty because I know where people are coming from. Personally, like I kind of alluded to before, I, I cringe a little bit because I I really. I want to be recognizing the service of others and, and I don't, you know, I don't, uh, I don't enjoy the spotlight on myself per se, you know, and it's, I'd much rather, you know, you know, when, when you're, you know, commanding officer of a SEAL team or helping run a big business, to me, success really to me is seeing others succeed. You know, when I, I applied for a program called the White House Fellowship, I was a White House Fellow in 2008. It's this program where you uh, write 10 essays and, and the hardest of essays because it's 200 words, you know, the it's the uh, the classic. You, you, know, to, you, you have, have to edit really it like, down, right? Yeah, totally. <laughs> I can't do that. <laughs> and so, uh, but the questions are, are like, why do you want to be a White House fellow? And I just remember one of my answers back in 2007 when I was writing was, I don't want to just positively influence people. I want to positively influence people to positively influence others, because then you get that positive, you get that nonlinear effect of uh, it out in the world. Why'd you, why'd you want to go in the Navy well, or in the service in general? So to, to, there's a, a theoretical and a practical answer. The, the theoretical answer is I, I grew up watching my grandfather and father uh, with great values both serve the nation in the Navy. And my grandfather was at Pearl Harbor on that day of infamy on December 741. And, uh, you know, just c continue to serve as a, as a pilot in World War II. Uh, my father was a, a submariner in during the Cold War, and so none of them, neither of them, either ever said, "Hey, Mike, you've got to go in the service. You've got to go do this." It was just a, a living a life of, of um, of service to others. And and so when it became time for college, they made me aware of this ROTC program that would pay for school. As the oldest of four, Clay, I just felt like you know, I should apply for the program. You know, I'll do four years and get out, and uh, and I got one of the scholarships, and so it was hard to turn down at the time. You know, what was a full four-year college education at a private institution? So um, th that that was 1993. I just turned 50 years old. You know, and in '93 we were what eight years before 9/11. It wasn't like when you made a made that that decision to go be a SEAL at age 21. It, you know, it wasn't like, oh, I'm going to go into this world of combat in 10 years, 20 years of, uh, of uh, really hard situations. Of course, we all knew what we were getting into, but it was theory, not practice. Did you so did you go did you go into combat zones in the 90s? There was there was Mogadishu. There was there was some stuff in Eastern Europe. Did you go into combat at all in your first several years in the service? I, I, so I did serve in Bosnia and in Kosovo. So that was those missions were much enforcing what was called the Dayton Peace Accords it was much more around special reconnaissance and making sure that, you know, two sides were, were, were separating and, and, and obeying the, the agreements in order to, you know, have less conflict. So a much different situation. Now, you know, what was I on, on a mission here or there shot at in 97? Yes, but nothing compared to, you know, the, the post 9-11 era that all SEALs have been through. I, I don't want to say I'm special. I'm not. All SEALs and all, many, many special operations and service men and women have, have uh, you know, served in different ways. I, like every SEAL of my era, have, you know, buried way too many friends, uh, something like 40, 40 friends. And, and, uh, and, and, you know, I've, Clay, candidly, I've, you know, I've been shot at and rocketed, but I've also cut one of my teammates' legs off uh, on that deployment. And, um, you know, I've been run over by a Carnival cruise liner. I've been held at gunpoint in Peru in 96. And so, like, these are all things back in college. I had no idea the way my life would unfold. And now what it makes me is really passionate about giving back. So why did you want to stay? Because I can understand you talk about you said the practicality of going into it, ROTC, you 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 enlisted after college, but you stayed. I did. And, and a I, lot don't. So why did you stay? Yeah, it's, it, it's another really fair question. And I stayed ultimately because, I, well, let me say this. I never s entered and said, I'm going to do 20 years. 
I just took it, you know, two or three year tour at a time and just always made my assessment of, of what's in front of me. And there were great jobs. You know, the, some of the best career advice I got was from a guy named Rick Smethers, who said he was a, he was a commanding officer of a, of a SEAL team. And he, I was, I don't know, 26 year old Mike Hayes. And, and he said, Mike, always take the good job now. You know, because we spend so many times in our lives trying to, you know, prepare for that thing later in life. Right. And, um, and which and you'll it, always be wrong about. Yeah. And, or, always. Or, or you can't always predict, be wrong. right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so, um, so, so in line with what what Rick was saying is, I just made those evaluations every couple of years, and then, you know, post nine eleven, it was very much a um, a situation where if not me, then whom? You know, at, at really being a seal is just about making risk decisions. You know, you're as a young SEAL, you're just going to do the job. As a senior SEAL, you're deciding what missions do you go on? How do you achieve the vision? And, um, and, and it really becomes very personal when you're the person carrying, you're, you're carrying the weight of the organization. And in our nation's, you know, sons and daughters are entrusted to senior military officers overseas. I just felt like at that point with my, the experience that I had, that it was really, almost my you know obligation to to uh, to, to continue to serve post 9/11 I don't get me wrong I wanted to it was my obligation and I wanted to um, but but it's a, it is definitely a sacrifice and a calling it, do is there a disconnect now between in 2021 and 20 in the last 10 years even between the military and the public at large. I don't know if I asked that question the right way. My brother was a Marine. He specifically wanted to join. He graduated from high school just a few years after uh, 9-11, and he was motivated in large part by 9-11 to wanting to go and serve. He chose the Marines, and God bless him for it. I'm sure I know, I know being a Navy SEAL ain't easy, but being a Marine is also, hey, <laughs> it's probably maybe the second, yeah, maybe the second least easy uh, uh, way to go about it. But um, there's just, a, to me, not a sense of real appreciation. And that's why I asked you the question about it a second ago, about if you ever get tired of hearing people say thank you for your service, only because even I, who has family who served in the military, my brother uh, spent did two tours in Iraq, and um, I sometimes cringe when I hear someone say it because it's almost as natural as gazuntite now. It's almost as natural as bless you when someone sneezes. Someone you find out someone was in the military or is in the military, and you say thank you for your service. And I wonder if there's a disconnect between what that means today to those people who say it and what it meant to folks in the 40s and 50s or what it even meant to folks who said it in the aughts, the zeros, you know, when when as a country we understood that we had a, a challenge ahead of us to fight against terrorism. We haven't, we're not as bad about with, with the Iraq and Afghanistan wars at the moment as as the country was in the 70s when people were protesting against Vietnam. But there doesn't, to me at least, seem to be really even an awareness of what people are doing overseas and why they went into the Marines or the Army or the Navy or the Air Force. Um, and, and I think to a lot of people, unfortunately, they're is almost a stigma attached to those who choose to go into the military out of high school, um, that it was the option that they could take. Um, why is this, am I wrong about this? I mean, you're a very optimistic person, so you're probably gonna tell me nobody thinks like that, but um, <laughs> you're very happy. But does it, does it not seem to you that we've, we've lost a little bit of that national patriotism, if that's the way to it's, describe it? it? Um, Here's what I would say is we have 325 million Americans, less than 1% have served in uniform. And so there's, of course, a disconnect between the 99% and the 1%. 
And so what's really important to me is to help bring that to life, you know, and, and um, you know, it, it's really, frankly, harder on the spouses, the, the, the spouses and the children of, of service members. You know, my daughter is now 20 years old. I, I've missed, you know, I missed her birth in, in, 90, in, in Kosovo in 2000 and, and then left home many, many times, just like many service members have. And look, how, how many people really understand what it's like to leave their, fa- their, their wife and daughter for six months or more seven times during a 20 year career? Like, you know, it's, 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 um, I'm not, but then to even come back to, to, I mean, listen, I've left family for long periods of time for tours. It's certainly not the same thing, but, but the, the big issue with the military is that there's a, seems to be a stigma of when I ran for Congress, uh, in 2014, my district covered all of, uh, Fort Bragg and the surrounding area. And, and, you know, it's, it should be a bigger story, but it's not the, the reentry into society of, of these men and women when they either come back from a tour or when they end their tour in the, in the service, trying to get jobs. You know, I've, I've talked to my brother who've, I guess, I guess I hear a lot of lip service and uh, that, that America seems to pay to our commitment to our veterans and our commitment to um, those who serve in the military, et cetera, et cetera. But eh, not many folks necessarily prioritize hiring these folks who have been in the military, um, even though they arguably are better trained at any and everything than hell, definitely better trained than me (laughs) at any and everything. And I I don't know if you, I want to talk about a whole bunch of other things, but I'm, I'm fascinated Look, I th- because you're I think so they, happy <laughs> about whether or not there's a problem that we have culturally about not appreciating that. He, the, the, the root of your question is, can people do more? The answer is yes. And then the question is what? And to me, that's doing two things. Number one is familiarizing yourself with somebody else's story. Understand what life is like in somebody else's shoes that knowledge, that empathy, that understanding will really help unite and, 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 um, and create a shared, uh, a shared outcome for the nation. Then uh, the other part of it, though, is like I alluded to earlier, is uh, I would like to see, you know, everybody who's thanking me for my service serving in the ways that make the most sense for them. I do think that that uh, you know there's no this nation historically has united when there's a common enemy, you know that's right. That's when we come together. There's no common enemy right now that is like uniting America, and I'm not asking for an enemy. But the point is, why can't we unite like we can, and, and like we know that we're capable of? So it, it's that it's through that service, that empathy, that understanding that really helps us be stronger, and that's what we're missing, I think, Clay. Okay. Well. Well. Then let me. Let me throw a counterpoint out and say that I think some people would argue that we do have common enemies. Um, and, and unfortunately, more and more, they are our fellow Americans who happen to disagree with us. You know, you've got folks on the left side of the political spectrum who have increasingly seen anyone who is on the right or dares vote for a Republican to be a to be a common enemy, which has bound together people on the left strongly. And then you have people on the right who think that liberals are out to destroy America. Um, This common enemy thing, you're 100% right. It is powerful motivation to to band together. But are we using it the wrong way now? (laughs) Are politicians using it the wrong way? You said familiarize yourself with someone else's story. And it's hard to get people to be willing to do that now if they believe that the other person might disagree with them on anything. You know, the grandfa- my grandfather, who I referred to earlier, always reinforced, Mike, you're going to learn more when you're less listening than when you're talking. And I think right now we just, we have so many people that want to be talking and want to be heard and they seek to, to be heard rather than to understand. And so when you're really making great decisions and having, uh, you know, walking challenging paths and and doing things for the nation, what it it really is founded on 
is having a, a variety, variety of inputs into a, let's say a policy decision, or when I'm the commanding officer of a special operations task force overseas, I've been the last person to decide whether we drop a bomb on, on, on buildings or, or you know, just overseas. And, and that's not a decision you wanna get wrong. So then how do you do that? Well, gosh, you know, I'm, I'm the input and I'm the decider. If I'm the only input in that process, like it'll go right a lot of times, but it won't be right all the time. The way to be more right is to surround yourself with people who don't think like you. And see, so like now in the private sector, as I'm hiring, gosh, when some when I'm sitting across, somebody's sitting across the table from me and they they're, they look a lot like me, it can be very, uh, very um, uh, attractive to say, gosh, this person's really smart because their background's like mine and they look like me. And uh, gosh, you're hired. The thing that, that the thing that you need to do is find the person who doesn't look like you, who doesn't think like you, because then you get variety of inputs. And if you have a culture and a process that that uh, ultimately uh, uh, open mindedly considers all these different possibilities, you're going to come to a better decision out of a thousand decisions. You'll make a thousand great decisions instead of just nine hundred and ten or something. So you talk in your book about taking lessons from your time as a commander. Um, in Afghanistan and in, with the Navy SEALs and applying those lessons to my life, everybody's life and, and how we can do that too. But when you are a commander and you are making those decisions to drop what, when you are a commander and you are making life or death decisions every day, how often did you take input from the folks who ranked lower than you? Every single decision. Really? Every time. Because I wanted to be, I wanted to maximize our probability for success. And if I don't listen to others, then I will not maximize the probability for success. Now, the first thing in decision-making, Clay, is not the decision itself, it's when to make the decision. And so the thing that I learned, and I've, I've gone through these high, I've done the 3 a.m. call, 3 a.m. emergency wake-up call thing that, that, that literally thousands of times in my life. And, you know, do we do X or do we do Y? Like those, so I've thought a lot about the abstraction of how, what do you learn in these types of situations? And by the way, it's not just like, do you drop a bomb overseas during war? It's, do you take career risk? Do you, do you go down path A or it's just a path A or path B kind of question that you're evaluating in here. So um, anyways, I, I just deeply believe that if I'm the if I'm not listening to anybody else, my I, I will not be serving my teammates as well as I possibly can. Do you think that politicians are listening to other people? <laughs> Not what our I current want. politicians. <laughs> nope. I, I think that there is not enough uh, logic and reason right now in, in listening and in, in, in trying to understand others. Like, look, our forefathers made the nation so that we're going to bump our way down the highway, but the car is going to stay on the road, you know? And, and so the, the way that, so 50% of the country at any given time is not going to appreciate the policy decisions. And so how do we as a nation accept that the, accept that as a feature of the system, not a bug? You see, the, the feature of the system is exactly what I was just talking about making a decision overseas, whether you drop a bomb or not, it's you want the different inputs. So look, the, the decider, sometimes it's the right, sometimes it's the left, that'll go back and forth through time, but it's okay when we're not the person making the decision. All we can do is try uh, to have our own, you know, whatever our own leanings are to be in, be in the decision-making seats. And when you're not, just give the best input you, that you possibly can. And I think that- is this yeah, sorry. No, go ahead and finish. finish. No, 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 you go. Well, I was going to say, is how much of that mentality, which I think is wonderful, comes from a childhood growing up with military family members and, and leaders in your family who were, who were in the Navy, and how much of it comes from a, a decades-long career in a structured military? Um, because I don't know that there are that many people outside of the military in America right now who really have the respect for that sort of hierarchy of authority. That that recognition when you were a when you were a simply a sailor, in, uh, you know, or a, a first class in the Navy, you knew that your superior officers might ask your opinion, but whatever they decided, you had to go with, right? And 
the same went for you as a commander, as is, you know, the admirals, admirals were saying things, you had to go with it. As you said things, they had to go with it. There is a system in place and it is trained and it is part of the culture. Um, that doesn't exist outside of the military as much anymore. So this ability for Americans to be okay with the fact that sometimes we're not going to get to make a decision and sometimes we are doesn't seem like it's the thing we're teaching folks very much. Should we be make should we be requiring military service for more people? Well, I think we should be requiring service for more people. That's for sure. I think like uh, the the year mandatory year of service, uh, great people like Stan McChrystal and 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 others are re- really pushing this year year of service and I I deeply believe in it. It could be go work in the forest service and help, you know, help cut fire breaks in the in the forest. You know, whatever it is that 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 you know teach for america go teach in in some one of our uh, underprivileged areas that need more love and attention like just whatever that 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 thing i will tell you that that uh in giving we really do receive we become stronger so to your point earlier it's uh, it's like hey nothing wrong with fighting like hell for what you believe in the 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 problem is knowing when to um to think about it more longitudinally, more through time and say, you know what? Okay, I, I fought, I lost. Let me move on and try to like go fight the next battle. That, that's, what, that's what's missing in that, that reasonable, rational dialogue is the, the middle has been in many ways, well, I would say the, the middle has been hollowed out, but the question really isn't whether the middle has been hollowed out. It's whether the media makes you think that the, the middle is hollowed out because we're so polarized. And so just structurally thinking about how we're organized on uh, ultimately from, you know, what boils down to profitability and, and, and return on invested capital for shareholders of various, you know, of various um, media uh, channels. And so, look, it's, it has to be if in so many times about the bottom dollar. And, and if there were ways to think about restructuring, uh, you know, capital, capitalism to be more inclusive, I, I think that that can only be a good thing. That's the closest I think I've heard you get so far to being a little bit upset about something. Is that an issue that bothers you? <laughs> oh, no, Clay, I, you know, I, look, I, I don't get frustrated. I, I really, I'm what my, my resting heart rate is, you know, whatever it is, 55 or 60 or whatever. I, I very rarely do, do I get really frustrated and flapped. I, I, I think that, uh, what, what I do- that doesn't bother you though the corporate the 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 greed or the drive to make it for everything to be about a profit doesn't frustrate you just a little bit well no what what um what bothers me is people not trying to make a system better you know no matter mm-hmm. is understanding how do we make how do we make the world a better place and then not doing something to contribute to it when I see people who are able to contribute more in, in different ways, which could be as simple as having an open mind to listening to others, then um, then, then that's frustrating. I, I will I will say that for sure. But then you know all, all we can do is try to teach, inspire, motivate, and model different behavior. How do you pick your battles? That's a great question. The um, maybe what I'll do is give a long stuttering wind up so I can think about the answer to the question while I stutter. <laughs> God, that's what I always do. <laughs> uh, I mean, is there anything you learned in the in yeah. in yeah yeah no any uh, of your career that helps you know how to pick them? Well, it's fun. like we, I think what's important is knowing what gives us energy and knowing what we're good at, and finding some intersection uh, of of. Um, of those two, the, what the center, the Venn diagram of those two circles is really where the solution set is, where we want to live our life. So uh, the the battles are always like to uh, to 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 find that to find that uh, energy that that uh, that that thing that you want to focus on. So look, a lot of times in life, people don't necessarily think about the outcomes that they're trying to achieve. It's it's we get so caught up in the day to day. It's it's the activity. It's the it's the input and the output based life that really uh, that's what scares me because you know old, we we have limited time here. We want to make a difference, but what we what we really need to do is stop and think about what is meaning. You know what is purpose, and how do we how do we is it our, just investing in our immediate family? Nothing greater than that, or is it you know ways that we can uh, give back to our our churches, our schools, our hospitals, or whatever the case is? But just you know, and you got to just try things on in order to figure out what it is. And and so I think to your question, the thing that that actually 
you know, um, which is to, to what battles you pick is like trying things on, you know, just go try things on and then evaluate like, what did I like it? Did I not like it? Do I agree? Do I disagree? And then, and then help that na help find your, your inner passion that way. How do you keep emotions out of those decisions then? Or do you? Well, I think that, um, you have to be able to be somewhat emotionally agnostic when it comes to evaluating the hard thing that you need to do. I talk in the book a little bit about comfort with discomfort and that the, the trajectory to excellence and meaning and purpose in life is trying hard things. And if you don't try hard things, I say, you know, then, then you're not going to have that, that as much learning as you possibly can. If we all go and try the hardest thing we possibly can in front of us, we will either succeed or we will fail. But I would argue it's, it's only failure if you go down the logic tree one more node and you say, okay, did I learn or not learn? Failure and learning is actually success. Kind of think about like in, in your life in 2014, you just talked about running and, um, and, and you didn't win, right? You, you, but you did win. And so- But I'm very good at not winning at no, this but point. Clay, so you okay. did win. <laughs> yes. American Idol, you know, like, so, but like, you, you won, like, oh my gosh, like how many people try these hard things? Not, not many do. And so all of the, um, the credit goes to the person who tries the hard thing and learns. You said you get frustrated by people who don't want to do better, make the world better or make or change things for the better. What would you, what's the most important thing for you to change that you feel like you would like to see change in America right now um, that you haven't talked about already? So not not people doing more service learning or just helping people in general. But is there a policy issue that you're passionate about? Is there a certain thing in I can't stand gerrymandering. And I can't stand money in politics and everybody knows it. Is there something about our system that you feel should be prioritized that in, in its brokenness? Well, to be candid, the thing that is nearest and dearest to my heart is helping people get into that year of service and thinking about uh, how you grow and learn. So um, I, I worry a lot about the future of the country when it comes to the foundational issues, family, education, healthcare. You know, because look, the, the nation can hold up Navy SEALs as, or any special operations or military as really special and, and rightfully so, but also there's a lot of special people in the world, when doctors and lawyers and educators. If we go back to Econ 101, it's just gross domestic product is just labor times productivity. And that's the total economic output of the nation. So what's really important is productivity because with more productivity, we have more economic output, and then we can spend it on things like education and healthcare and, um, and, and, and lift the nation up. You know, we, we can buy more seals. So uh, for me, Clay, really that, that getting off the sideline and doing what you can in order to help contribute to, to ultimately the totally, total economic output of, of the nation is really uh, an issue that is, is near and dear to my heart, but the, it, it can take many different forms and fashions. You're not upset about anything, though. It's, it's re both refreshing and a little bit no, like, what the hell's wrong with him? No, yeah, 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 <laughs> no, yeah. Is this guy real? No, um, look, I, I really do hate that we are so polarized. I, 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 so how do we fix it? Yeah, so... Uh, what can we concretely do instead of just saying, everybody, please get along and hug each other? Is there, are there things that we could con concretely do to in the way we structure our government or our system or anything that would help address that. You're, you're, a, you're a commander, it, command us. It, it, <laughs> yeah, it, it starts with modeling at the top. You know, it's, um, it starts with uh, culture and process for the nation. And so when we have leaders who, who model, uh, like for example, I don't care where you are on the political spectrum, if you listen to Biden's acceptance speech and talk about unity, it is, if you disagree with, with what the substance of what was said, I, I'd say you, it, it, it just doesn't compute. Like if, like if we did an experiment, Clay, and we said, look, you, you were able to like scramble his voice and say, is this a good speech or bad speech? You know, if people see the picture of Biden and know what party he's in, 50% of the country will say right. awesome and 50% terrible. If you could do that same speech in an agnostic, voice agnostic way, I bet you 95 plus percent of Americans would say awesome right. speech. That is what we need. 
So we need to just scramble everybody's voice and, and blindfold <laughs> yeah. them so they can't see who's yeah. talking. Is that what it is? No, Do you I, like politics at all? Do you enjoy following it? Does it interest you? What are you going to run for? Well, I, I love, I do, I do love politics. I, um, you know, I had 20 years of public service. And so, you know, honestly, I've, I'm really enjoying this chapter of my life in the private sector and in helping run a large software company. It's, um, I'm, I'm learning, growing, et cetera. And so ultimately I think that my last chapter in life will be public service. I have no idea exactly how yet. I was yet. about to say, so what are you going to run for? <laughs> you know, or, 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 or appointed. I don't have, Clay, I've, uh, I, I, I'm, um, I've been tapped on the shoulder and asked. That would me. definitely be the way to go because running is a pain in the ass. I'll yeah, I know. No, no, I, <laughs> I've been asked a few times to kind of think about returning to DC, and I'm just I'm just not ready. I've got a good chapter in, uh, in front of me in the private sector, and then uh, and then in, in maybe a decade or something, I'll raise my hand and say, "All right, I'm ready to help. Wh wh where? Wh how can I help the most?" Where are you from originally? Are you from Connecticut? No, I grew up in Rhode Island. Lived in Virginia for you know the better part of two decades as a SEAL, and then work after the SEALs brought me to Connecticut. Got it. So you're so you're not too far from home. Um, no, I could I could, and, and I, so could there, I could there are plenty of there are plenty of seats there are plenty of seats that are available if you choose to run for something, which you know you've thought about because you're very good at this. Well, you spent, I mean, you were in the National Security Council. You've commanded SEAL Team Two. You worked for W. Bush and Obama. I mean, the resume is pretty good, and you know you've thought about it. Well, I, I've thought about, and I don't even know what party you're in. Well, I, I honestly haven't given running much thought at all. I really haven't, Clay. Um, it, it all I know is that it, the, in life, if you just work on building your foundation, you can build the walls and the roof later. Uh, you know, when I was a White House fellow, it was an awesome year because we got to sit down with roughly 180, maybe 200 people that by any definition were extremely successful. All the cabinet secretaries, Supreme Court justices, CEOs, and like I said, at age 35 or so, you're having these candid, off-the-record record Chatham House Rules conversations with people, and you start learning meta-lessons. You, you hear repetitive things, and I will tell you that many of these, you know, the, the Secretary Powell's, Madeleine Albright's, and, and, and uh, you know, it's like, people the nation just rightly revere will tell you that that in their lives the the time they were most rewarded was when they were giving back and um and they'll also tell you one of these meta lessons across all of these people is that none of them really over planned their career you can't sit there at age you know 25 or 35 or 45 and say you know in 10 years i'm going to be position x it never works. It's always like, you know, 10 years ago, I walked out of a, 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 um, a Starbucks, I turned left, I ran into Billy, Bobby or Susie, and they said, hey, you ought to go to this think tank. And then the th if I went to the think tank, led me to this thing, led me to the other thing. And now I'm the secretary of X, Y or Z. That's just the way it works for almost all of these kind of senior positions. And so I think that, you know, while of course you need to have a certain foundation and a certain set of experiences to be qualified, I do think that it's it, it doesn't work to sit there and eye, eyeball any specific position. I think it's more of just raising your hand and saying, I'm, re I'm ready to serve and jump into the mix. Where does it make the most sense? Um, we got a bunch of questions that came in from uh, listeners for you this week, but a lot of them are, are a little bit more politically charged. So I'll get you, I'll go get you started a little bit, um, warmed up. Any thoughts on um, on Biden's announced President Biden's announcement yesterday about drawing down uh, troops in Afghanistan? Is this a good thing? A thing that it's concerns a, you? Yeah, it, Clay, it's a great thing. A lot of thoughts on it. Look, twenty years. Uh, I would say a couple things. Number one is. Um, you know, the the decision is right. It's time. We've we've um, one thing that the the cost benefit analyses kind of like forget to take into consideration are the opportunity cost of what's uh, what we can be doing with those those incredible servicemen and service women and and resting and recovering and refitting and training for the next thing is an important, very important uh, foundation we need to set. And you can look and say, oh, it's only 2,500 Americans that are in Afghanistan right now. But, you know, it takes up, things like this take up much more bandwidth than 2,500 people's worth. It's it's the staffs that are at all the way between, you know, CENTCOM all the way to the Pentagon and, and different, you know, Secretary of the Navy, Secretary of the Army. Like these, 
it, these things uh, take a lot of, uh, of bandwidth. And then the second thing I would say is, look, we've invested a lot of resources. One thing the military really struggles with is the concept of sunk costs. You know, it's if you remember, you know, if you pay 20 bucks to, well, let's say go to a movie theater, but nobody's done that for a year and a half. But if you pay 20 <laughs> right. bucks to, to go to a movie on a Friday night, and then, uh, you know, 30 minutes before the movie, you say, you know what, gosh, I wish I stayed home. Well, you're, you're supposed to do that night whatever gives you the greatest happiness. You know, the, the sunk cost of the movie ticket should be thrown away and right. you should sit on your couch. And so, you know, for, for us as Americans, the sunk costs are a lot harder when they are teammates and friends that are, that are in our nation's, uh, you know, cemeteries. And so the thing that we need to do is, is be a little bit stoic and a little bit agnostic here and say, look, it's a cost-benefit analysis of, like, of, of saying, uh, what is the right thing for the nation? And uh, we've, we need to, to take a forward-looking cost-benefit analysis. So for me, Clay, it's been 20 years. I think President Biden is absolutely making the right decision. Um, thoughts on sanctions against Russia for the bounties that they put on U.S. military heads and the uh, the hacking of, of federal computer systems. Yeah. The right decision? Not enough? Well, um, this these are complicated single-issue answers when it's always life is, is never single-issue, right? So you need to think holistically across. Shouldn't be single-issue. You're right. Shouldn't be. Shouldn't be. But we, um, we, a lot of people make it that. But <laughs> Right. Yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a great counterpoint. The... Um, what, what I'll say is this, Clay, whether it's Russia or Iran or North Korea, we need to be uh, negotiate from positions of strength, not weakness. So what's important is, you know, when you look at like proxy, you know, every, every nation has its kind of shadow proxy battles that are being fought. For, for Iran, it's, you know, the Houthis in Saudi, it's, 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 the, uh, it's, it's uh, Syria, et, et cetera, et cetera. And so with, um, with, uh, you know, Russia is pushing, you know, forces on the, on the, on, on with Ukraine, uh, uh, you know, annexing Georgia, uh, uh, Abkhazia and South Ossetia uh, in 2008 or whatever, like these things have costs because the, what the nation needs to be doing is holding the line where we can and being strong. But at the same time, the, the being able to be nuanced enough to have conversations and to be able to solve these multi-issue negotiations in ways that come out with the greatest good for, for the nation. So I, I'm, I'm kind of rambling now, Clay. My main point here with Russia is, is we need, and, and any of these places, we need to negotiate from strength, not weakness. Are we doing that with Iran by re-entering the talks with Iran? Are we, are we negotiating from a position of strength, or do you think we're negotiating from a position of weakness that we may or may not have been left in by the yeah. last administration. Well, uh, here's here, my personal view is that we should be talking to anybody that will talk to us. Not talking to other nations is not productive. I don't care who they are. Uh, so uh, attempting to always have a dialogue with Iran, North Korea, Russia, it's, it's very, very critical. The, um, <clears throat> now, uh, with with Iran, look, you could argue, like, let's look at the killing of Soleimani roughly a year ago. That man was responsible for a force that did a lot of bad things to a lot of good people. You know, and so, you know, you, people can argue, should we have, you know, ha should we have taken him out or not? Look, I, the, I, I've been through lots of war and lots of conflict. There's no question in my mind that that was the right thing to do. And, um, and, and so these are the things on the fringes of the primary issue, which is how are central relations with us and, and any other nation, that's, those are the types of things where we need to stand up for ourselves and take a, a firm stance, simultaneously have the open mind in the, in the, in the lines of dialogue, the communication with these places. Okay, you, you, I'm going to move to the questions from listeners that were specifically sent in for you. Um, and you, you briefly kind of brushed along a, a generally slightly close to this area in Europe a second ago. Um, and I have no idea what this question means. I'm going to be straight up frank with you. Um, but you will. Patricia from Baltimore. Forgive me, Patricia. Um, but she asks, do you think our country is at risk of balkanizing? Do we have any common cultural touchstones left? 
oh, now I know what she's talking about. I get it. But um, do we have, I guess, is our country at risk of splitting up <laughs> and, and being broken by our cultural differences? Look, I, I don't think there's real risk that that would ever actually happen. But I think that even, but the, the fundamental essence of that question uh, really does bring out the concerns that we've been talking about, about polarization. And so is there a risk of polarizing without actually breaking up and literally balkanizing? That risk is absolutely there. And, um, and, and, and it's a good, good question. I, I believe that this is the, the thing we need to be doing is having the dialogue within the borders of the United States across cultures or any sort of dichotomies. I don't care what, what way, what line you draw between you know, uh, race, gender, sexual orientation, geography, religion, color of skin, whatever it is, like we need to be talking and respecting each other. And if we do that right, we will never balkanize. I'm an eternal optimist about this nation. And I, we can very, very You quickly, are an optimist. Well, we can very, very quickly make, we could overnight make this place, you know, 10x better. Oh, mercy. Wave a magic wand for me, Mike, please. Um, there are really a lot of good ones um, from listeners this week, so I'm going to try to quick fire through a few of them. Um, and I'm already I'm, I'm screwing that up because I can't turn my page here. Carlos from Miami, Florida asked, what would be needed for us to no longer have to police places like the Gulf of Aden? Good question, Carlos. What, what we need is uh, a, 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 it's ultimately trust and uh, in, a, in a security where we have patterns, we have commercial shipping that is not challenged. If you look at like the, who maritime flow of commerce is essential to that global GDP. Global GDP is what lifts everybody up. So whenever shipping gets choked or threatened, it threatens everybody. So the Gulf of Aden can seem very far away from us right now. But we're also interconnected in today's global world that it's really essential for us to make sure that, that we're not going to you know, impede the ability to freely navigate the seas according to the rule of the, the international rule of, of, of the sea. So, Carlos, I think it's really important that uh, that that until we're we're certain that there's not not real legitimate uh, material risk to the freedom of navigating, we'll have to be doing that. Shelly from San Bernardino, what mindset is best when approaching people from a very different and possibly hostile culture? The mindset is, is simultaneously two things. Number one is first and foremost, caution and, um, and awareness. It's, it's a heightened sense of keeping your, your, your radar, your antennas up for perceiving uh, both, you know, threats or, um, or, or, um, or ways where you know you or your group could be harmed, and I'm speaking very much from a seal who has dropped into many foreign countries and tried to figure life out. The, um, but at the same time, I was going to say that because I was wondering. I I heard her question a different way, and you answered oh. it in in the seal way, which is fascinating. Keep that up. But I do wonder if she's asking about hostile differing opinions within the u.s well, uh, <laughs> within our neighbors yeah, i wonder how yeah. we... sorry i was taking the uh, no but, but keep well, going sorry. But, like I, I i've literally been in you know the far corners of afghanistan and given uh speeches to you know a hundred or a thousand or five thousand villagers that of which the taliban is unquestionably present and talked about you know very how to how to think about uh, you, rejoining their government and uniting, and so on the one hand, you know, your your uh, those antennas and the perceptors are up, but at the, at the same time, you're you're really working to um to drive toward a common goal and a common vision of, of unity and achieving the um, the outcomes you're trying. Now, for the stateside part, I, I think that um, again, it goes Clay, if the, the the empathy, the understanding, and living and understanding understanding other people's stories are the single uh, most important path in my mind to, um, to having tolerance and the ability to uh, live next to or around or within and among people who don't think like us and aren't like us. Differences need to be celebrated, not, uh, not chastised. And get the hell off Twitter. Um, except for if you're sending us questions like Vaughn from Knoxville, Tennessee, who um, asks a question that I really am excited to have you answer. Uh, what are the most important skill sets to take with you as you move between industries? It's the foundational 
the foundational elements of character, integrity, judgment, and ultimately investing in other people and building, building teams. There's so many key things to, to building that winning team, but it starts with, you know, articulating the common goal that people are trying to achieve, understanding what motivates people, how we're all, like I said, different, motivated by different things. Some people are motivated by, by compensation or public recognition or education, quality of life. And look, when, when we meet people who are motivated by things different than us, that's okay. We're all on the same team and we're trying to achieve the same thing for our, our own organizations. So I, I really think it, it boils down to creating a single team made up of, of whomever, whomever we, uh, the, the point we said earlier, Clay, around differences and having different skill sets within the team. Okay, last one from the listeners. Um, Nawaz from Boulder, Colorado. I love this question, Nawaz. Should things ever calm down, would you recommend visiting Afghanistan? Was there something about the country that stayed with you? Nawaz, I think Afghanistan is one of the most beautiful countries in the world. Physically, it is beautiful. To be in a helicopter flying over, you know, just everything from the desert to the 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 river, and then the green, lush vegetation for you know a couple hundred meters or so off those rivers, and then to see the mountains and to feel that crisp, absolutely fresh air. Nothing better, nothing nicer. I really look forward to the day where you know I, I can take my daughter back to Iraq or Afghanistan because it's a safe and be just uh, pro- prosperous and, and, um, and really uh, contributing, to, uh, contributing to the world. I love that was your answer. I was, I was hoping you'd say that. that. Afghanistan, I was lucky enough to go in, in 07 with UNICEF and went to Kabul and um, found it both charming and beautiful at the time. I was lucky in that small little window where things had been had had calmed down a little bit and had not yet ramped back up to to being more dangerous and um and it I've always said if I could have bought we went to Bamiyan and spent a lot of time in Bamiyan which is in the center of the country and has traditionally been a little bit more peaceful also but the Hindu Kush around you and mm. these beautiful valleys and rivers and and lush green areas and I used to say god if I could buy a, a vacation home somewhere here in Bamiyan I'd do it I don't think I'd be able to get in and out very easily but um you, buy, you, it buy, is, you can still buy low you could definitely buy. I actually, I bought it. I still wear it around my neck all the time. I have a, while I was in Kabul, I've got, you can't see it from here. Um, they were, there was a little merchant who was selling um, handmade jewelry and had taken lapis lazuli, you know, the, the blue stone that is abundant there. And we had, it was burning it or soldering out, soldering it onto different metals and different items. And I was looking around and lo and behold, there was one that he had uh, made out of a U.S. quarter. I noticed on the front that it was a U.S. quarter, and I thought that was interesting. He had put this little, I don't know if you can see it. You probably can't see it at all. But, I can um, see it. He had put this little piece of lapis on the front of the U.S. quarter, and I could tell it was U.S. And I flipped it over, and, it was, and it's a North Carolina quarter. So I bought it. I thought, you know what, this is, and, I, and I've worn it, God, probably stinks. Um, <laughs> I've worn it for 13, 14 years now um, because it's a nice, it's a reminder of how, what we can do, what we do in one place, America, North Carolina, can make its way all the way around to a place like Afghanistan. That North Carolina quarter, which I didn't bring, or no one, I mean, ended up there and found by someone and turned into this, not really pretty, but but jewelry, period. And it's just a, a reminder to me all the time of how what we do here affects people everywhere. And, and we need to be mindful of that all the time. Um, the book is Never Enough. It's got a long subtitle, but Never Enough by Mike Hayes. Um, the subtitle is, let me find, a Navy SEAL commander on living a life of excellence, agility, and meaning. Um, but folks, look up Never Enough um, by Mike Hayes. This, <laughs> it's kind of crazy. It would be cra- it would have been crazy for me to say this at the beginning of this podcast. People would have scoffed, but I think after hearing you for um, for the past hour, I think people will understand and and 
see where I'm coming from when I say there are books about leadership from folks like Jack Welsh, who ran, who read, ran GE for years, for decades, and Lee Iacocca, who are considered to be these incredible minds when it comes to leadership. And mark my words, right here, whoever's listening, Mike Hayes is going to come back and talk to us as soon as soon as Richard Blumenthal finds a camera that's not on and decides to retire because he can't get on TV anymore. Mike Hayes is going to run for Senate in Connecticut, I'm telling you right now. <laughs> and you will know you heard him here first. And and you need to pick up you need to pick up this book Never Enough um by him because it's it I think will sit up there uh, along this alongside of those books by Lee Iacocca and and Jack Welsh when it comes on to talking about leadership and and your experiences in the military, how they shaped you, not in, just in the military and not just as a Navy SEAL commander, but in two White House administrations and then, you know, beyond uh, in the business world as well. So uh, I really recommend you grabbing this book, Never Enough, by Mike Hayes. Mike, thank you immensely for being with us. I am going to need to get a prescription from your doctor for whatever it is that you're taking that's keeping you so damn happy and cheerful and optimistic all the time. I think that's lovely and I appreciate it. <laughs> but I, I got to thank you so much for being here and ask you, how the heck are we going to get along? Well, Clay, first of all, again, thanks for all the positive and incredible impact you've had for this nation and this world. It's uh, so, such an honor and, and pleasure to be here and spend time with you. Uh, always a huge fan of yours. And um, and I'm a fan of everybody who leans in and, 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 and tries to make the world a better place. The, the way we're going to get along, really, like I said, it's, it's understanding where other people are coming from, seeking to be uh, under, uh, understand others rather than to be understood ourselves. And um, and the way to get along is, is define that vision. I really appreciate you mentioning the book and all of the all of my profits are going to the nonprofit that's that I started that pays off mortgages for Gold Star families. You know, I've buried like 40 or so friends, just like all SEALs of my era have. And um, and the ability to pay off mortgages for for widows who don't have their husband anymore is is just incredibly meaningful. And so I really, you know, I I, I learned early on that uh, in the seals that you know show no weakness and and it's the world is just um, all about strength and perception. And then as as I've gotten older, I, it's quite the contrary. It's uh, asking for help is a sign of strength, not weakness. I, I love asking for help because I'm I'm and with the book because I am donating all those profits. And Clay, it's just a real pleasure to be here. I, I just love the conversation. I love how you're contributing to the world. And, and uh, I'm here for you and your, your audience anytime I can possibly be helpful.